Give a hand for our Vacation Bible School and all of our volunteers. It was, it was so awesome. We're still riding high from this VBS this past week. We had the best time. I, I'm so proud of our church, our volunteers, our staff. It really was incredible. We, we, we can't wait for next year. It was so much fun that on Thursday, by Thursday, I lost my voice completely. Uh, I wasn't able to speak for Friday and Saturday. Um, my wife, Sarah, said it was the best two days of our marriage. <laughs> Twelve years. Um, uh, Viva, it was incredible. Now, of all the books of the Bible, this is our last week in Jonah, Jonah has the most unexpected and overlooked final chapters. It is a very surprise ending. Now, most people who have heard of the story of Jonah, but they think of the ending as Jonah within the fish. He repents within the fish, and then that's how the story ends. Even fewer people would then go, no, then he goes to Nineveh and, like, preaches there. But then, then most, almost nobody goes all the way to chapter 4 and actually finishes the story. And actually many children's books end either in the fish or in Nineveh and forget about chapter 4 altogether. Uh, yet there is a final startling chapter in which the real lessons of the entire narrative are revealed. Remember in chapter 3, uh, the revival that happened, right? Great revival after Jonah's five-word sermon. Uh, now we pick it up in chapter 4. It says this in verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, right? Greatest revival history of planet Earth, and yet to Jonah, it feels very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Now, you would expect that the trajectory of the story ends in chapter 3. Uh, it says, chapter 1 is, go to Nineveh, and, and preach against them. And in chapter 3, he does that, and the people turn. Conclusion of the whole matter. Uh, but yet, you, you think he'd, he'd, he'd come home rejoicing. Uh, instead of the events that actually took place. See, Jonah's ticked. It says that he burned with anger. And the reaction is shocking and almost inexplicable. Does a band get angry when they sell out a show at Madison Square Garden? Does a comedian... Uh, get angry when he gets a standing ovation at the Apollo? No. Why then, when Jonah, who has just preached to the toughest audience of his life, they've responded positively, down to the last person, down to the animals, why would he melt into a furious rage? See, Jonah went to Nineveh to preach the good news, hoping they wouldn't accept it. Jonah had finally did what God wanted, but God didn't do what Jonah wanted. That's infuriating. God, I did what you wanted finally, but you didn't do what I wanted. He's the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? You welcome home the sinners, and yet you should be kicking them out. You're throwing a party when you should be throwing them on the street. He's the older brother. In this phrase here in verse 2, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, okay? It's quoted uh, over a dozen times in the Old Testament, and he's actually uh, quoting Exodus. 
And God is the one who first says this about himself. And now Jonah is quoting it back to God and throwing it in his face. I knew you were going to do this. You love to forgive people who don't deserve it, don't you, God? Jonah 4 is exposing the self-righteousness of God's prophet. And the church in general, this church, all churches, would do well to get rid of the self-righteousness that seems to emanate from us on Sunday mornings and beyond. Uh, There were two elderly women uh, excited. They were from the South, and they were sitting together in the front pew of their church listening to their pastor, fiery preacher. And when this preacher condemned the, the sin of stealing, the two ladies cried out, Amen, brother. When the preacher condemned the sin of lust, they yelled again, You preach it, Rev. And when the preacher condemned the sin of lying, they jumped up to their feet and they hollered, Right on, brother, tell it like it is. But when the preacher condemned the sin of gossip, the two got very quiet. One turned to the other and said, Well, he quit, pre- he, he quit preaching, now he just meddling. Uh, we've all got our struggles. Let's stop pretending that we don't and get on with living our authentic lives, becoming the people God has called us to be. Let's be a place of grace. God tries four times in this chapter just to get Jonah to understand this thing called grace. And Jonah's angry because it appears as though God has played a trick on Jonah. And to see the trick, to understand the trick, we have to go back to chapter 3. Remember the five-word sermon from uh, chapter 3? Here it is on the screens. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And this is the best part of the book to me. And kids would never get this, okay? This doesn't make it into the children's version of the story. Uh, the last word in Jonah's sermon is overthrown or overturned. Some of your Bibles will say overturned. Some will say uh, overthrown. And that's a good translation. So 40 days, Nineveh will be, the Hebrew word is hapak. Hapak, to turn over, okay? That's, that's what it means. It means to turn over. And it's a baking term. So if you don't turn it over, it'll get burnt, right? It's for bread. And even in English, words can have a basic meaning to turn over, but then also have different nuances as well. Like you could say, I destroyed my car, which means you literally got in a wreck and you destroyed your car. Or you could say, last night I destroyed the world record for how many sit-ups that can be done in five minutes. Okay? Accurate usage of the word destroy, but completely different. It is no longer negative. Destroying the world record of how many sit-ups you can do in five minutes, that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. I I could use some of that. Uh, Different. Different nuance. This is language. And the same is true in Hebrew language. The basic meaning of hapak is to turn something over. So if you take a city and it gets overturned, that's the negative sense of hapak. You can see this in Lamentations, ver- verse on the screen, chapter 4, verse 6. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown, hapak, in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Okay? But then nuance, hapak, can also mean something turned over from bad to good. Psalm chapter 30, verse 11. You turned, you hapaked my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. This is good. So hapak can literally mean... Uh, something bad becomes something worse, okay? Like in a city. But it can also mean something bad 
becomes good like a human heart. Now, here's what's brilliant. Here's the ninja move that God does on Jonah. Which meaning do you think Jonah meant when he proclaimed hapak for Nineveh in his five-word sermon? Right? The first. Right? Clearly overturning from bad to worse, to destroy. Which meaning do you think God intends and which clearly happens? Number two, right? Overturning something bad into something good. That's the trick that God plays on Jonah. Okay, that's funny. Okay, it's okay if you don't laugh. Jonah didn't laugh either. He's ticked. He's fired up. God actually uses Jonah's bad intentions to accomplish his good intentions. And Jonah doesn't think it's funny at all. Look what happens next, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Uh, notice, God's already given the stay of execution, right? He says, no, I'm not going to do it. Then Jonah goes outside, builds a shelter outside the city, and just watches to see what's going to happen. He's waiting for it to fire to come down from heaven, right? Then he says this, verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So after his first conversation uh, with God about the revival, Jonah decides to stay in this temporary shelter outside the city, hoping that God will throw down from heaven again, okay? And to make Jonah stay more comfortable, God gives uh, uh, him a plant, okay? It's probably a castor oil plant. Many scholars believe they grow up really fast, and they actually provide quite a bit of shade. And then we are told that Jonah is delighted or glad. These are unusually strong words, and this is actually the first time in the entire story where Jonah's happy. First time, and it's over a plant. It, it seems that in deep discouragement and grief, sometimes it's the small comforts that are particularly sustaining for us, right? And self-pity may have played a role here with the joy over the plant. And he's like, well, finally, something good is going right for me now. And then Jonah's all the more shocked when he wakes up the next morning, morning and a little tiny inchworm consumed the whole plant. And he's like, unbelievable. On top of everything else, now this, God, I can't catch a break. And Jonah's anger is renewed along with his despair. And he says, I am angry enough to die. The plant, the worm, the rhetorical questions God asked Jonah, these are all ways of God to try and expose the hypocrisy and self-righteousness within Jonah. And Jonah, at every point, fails. But God keeps sending stuff. Storm. Great storm. Great fish. Shady plant. Brings him joy. Tiny little worm. Notice that God sends big things, and then send smaller things, right? Storm, big storm. Great fish. Nice plant. Tiny little worm. He goes from big to small. I don't know why God does that. You'd think that he'd start small and then go progressively bigger. 
and that's not what happens. And I legit don't know why, okay? I don't know what God might be saying through that reversal of sending big things to then small things. Maybe someday it'll hit me, but today I just don't know. Nevertheless, God doesn't just accept Jonah's foolishness and rebellion. God doesn't leave him alone. Look at verse 10. It says this, and let's finish. We're going to finish Jonah. Here we go. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern, another translation is compassion, for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Thanks for the last tidbit there, Jonah. Uh, That's how it ends. And also many animals. There must be missing a page somewhere. Why would it end so abruptly? And why would it end with a question? Funny that the prodigal son also ends with a question. The parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke also ends with a question. It's as if God shoots this arrow of a question at Jonah. And then Jonah disappears, and we realize that the arrow is aimed at me. How will you answer the question? Because the book of Jonah ends this way, the text invites us to write our own paragraphs, our own final chapters. That is, God calls us to apply this text in our own lives. And now, today, that's the scandalous side of God's grace. God asked, should I not have compassion for the people of Nineveh? And Jonah would say, no, that's what I've been trying to say this whole time. You shouldn't have compassion on the people of Nineveh. They're bad. Why don't you get this yet, God? And God's saying the same thing back to Jonah. Why don't you get this yet? Jonah 4 is about God's love for our enemies. This is a picture of Gordon Wilson. Uh, He was an Irishman. He lived in Northern Ireland. And in 1987, some of you know the the culture, the political culture and climate in Ireland in in the late 80s. Um, with tons of violence between the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and the British. Um, And Gordon Wilson did not agree with the IRA's use of violence. And in his little northern Irish town, they had a town square, and they had Remembrance Day. And Remembrance Day was a way for Great Britain to remember the the heroes of World War I and II from England. Uh, And so Gordon went with his family to the town square, to celebrate Remembrance Day. And unbeknownst to him, the IRA had planted bombs throughout the town. And during that Remembrance Day ceremony, the bombs went off. You can see some of the pictures of the destruction it left. Some of the buildings around the town collapsed. Walls caved in. And Gordon Wilson and his daughter were caught underneath a wall that had collapsed, and they were there for many hours both severely injured, but next to each other. They were actually able to talk to each other the whole time. They were finally rescued, and they were pulled out. Gordon's daughter did not survive through the night, but Gordon did. Two days later, after he had recovered, he was able to talk. The BBC came and did an interview with some of the survivors. And you can Google this, the interview with Gordon Wilson from 1987. It went as viral as it could before the days of YouTube, okay? This interview went worldwide. 
It caught the attention of the entire planet because of what he said. William Urey recounts the story. He captures it like this. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. This is what he said. She held my hand tightly. She gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those were the last words I ever heard her say. To the astonishment of the listeners, Wilson went on to add, But I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. It is said that no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful and emotional impact on the entire country. And the story gets even more amazing. A year later, to commemorate the victims of this bombing, Gordon Wilson held an event where he publicly invited leaders of the NRA and to meet. IRA. Because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he forgave his daughter's killers, and he begged the IRA to stop their violence. Gordon Wilson later became a senator, Uh, in Ireland. And to this day, he's held in such high esteem in Irish culture because of his commitment to Jesus. A, A former Irish president, speaking of the legacy of Gordon Wilson, says this, Gordon's words, they shamed us all and they caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we had all become used to. They brought a stillness with them and they carried a sense of the transcendent into a place that had become so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But Gordon, he had his detractors too. He began receiving bags of hate mail. Some would say this, how dare you forgive? The people demanded. What kind of father are you for forgiving your kids' murderers? It it was as if Gordon had spoken these words of forgiveness for the first time in human history, as if the Christ never uttered the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is this scandalous side of God's grace when the wideness of God's mercy begins to include the people we hate. It's offensive. Or it includes the people who have wronged us. Then this whole grace thing becomes really disturbing. This is what Jonah, the entire book, is about. And we can talk about God's compassion for my enemies, but just don't ask me about my compassion for my enemies. Let's leave it up there. God loves our enemies. Yes, Jesus loves our enemies. We can, we can deal with that. But when he calls us, don't ask. Don't, don't bring it practical. Keep it up there. Let's end the sermon there. Let's stop at God loves my enemies. Let's not go any further where I need to love them too. Oh, Pastor, you're meddling now. Walter Wink, incredible theologian, in one of his books, wrote this called The Gift of the Enemy. And I just, just have a prayerful heart as, you just, as, you, as, as we read this together. It's, it's so profound. He writes this. This is the gift our enemy may be able to bring us. To see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way 
than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. They're our friends precisely because they overlook those parts of us. The enemy is not just a hurdle to be leaped over on the way to God. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no access to these unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming. That is so true. That person in your life that is such an annoyance, that person that you just, there's a a large part of you that just kind of wants some bad things to happen to them. Not horrible things, but certainly some. And it's the gift of that enemy. The gift of that person is that they're exposing in yourself things that your friends choose not to see, choose to overlook. So here's a practical exercise. As we close this series, here's a very practical exercise for us to flesh this out in real life. Now we're leaving 8th century BC Nineveh, Assyria, and we're going right here right now. So this week, I just encourage you to open your Bible to Jonah 4, get out a piece of paper, write down the name of your enemy, okay? Whoever it is, whoever you dislike, whoever you just kind of wish, you know, just gotten a little fender bender, just nothing crazy. Who, you know who it is. I don't know who it is. God does, you do. Write their name down. And then jot down all the qualities in them that you hate. Just let it all out, okay? Make sure you're in a room, no one else around. Okay, and put it to paper. Then pray. Go through each line and ask the question, when have I acted this way? When have I treated people like that? And line by line, we'll have the opportunity to become more like Jesus or more like Jonah in hard-heartedness and rebellion. Do we want to choose to live the life of love and compassion? The God who is slow to anger, abounding in love? Or do we want to be like Jonah and get our ticket to Tarshish? I want to invite Noe and the band to come up and we'll close with this. There are lots of nuggets in the book of Jonah uh, and little tidbits. The, The one I want to mention and close with is this. We read that, that passage where Jonah says in verse 2 that, God, I knew you would do this, God. I knew you'd forgive. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love. Slow to anger, abounding in love. This is a Hebrew idiom. And literally in Hebrew is, you have a long nose. Jonah tells God, you got a long nose and you abound in love. And that's a great compliment to God. Why? Because in the ancient world, uh, they described getting angry as a short nose or a short fuse, right? Like if you get angry, your breathing speeds up and your, ne- your nose starts to flare fast, right? <laughs> right? When you're really mad. But if, if you've got a long nose, it's... When our kids are upset or when we're upset, or you're trying to help your spouse not be so upset. What do you say? Take a deep breath, not a chill pill. Somebody said that. 
take a deep breath, you're demonstrating a long nose. You're becoming more like Jesus when we become less angry, slow to anger, abounding in love. Can we do that this week? Could that be another practical exercise? Could we be slow to anger? Could we get a long nose? Could we, instead of having a short fuse, let's have a long nose. And let's be patient and abound in love like the God who showed and exhibited that to Jonah all those years ago. God, we pray in Jesus' name that that is, that's our heart, that that's the, what's true for us, that, that we're able to move beyond anger towards our enemies and move towards love. God, help us to see the gift of our enemies, that they can expose what's wrong and unchristlike in us. Maybe it's envy. God, whatever it is, I just pray that, that you would sculpt us, that you would prune us, and that might be painful for us, but it makes us more into the image of you you've called us to do all along. God, forgive us for the ways in which we think we deserve the blessings of God, but they, whoever they may be, don't. And help us to be a blessing in everything we do and say, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we declare that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, that he is our firm foundation, that we choose to live like, to follow, and to be like Jesus.